Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Shakespeare series brought to you by MyEntertainmentWorld.ca. I'm your host, Kelly Bedard, as always. But today, we get to talk about my favorite play in the entire world. This is King Lear episode. I'm very excited about it. And to talk to me about King Lear, I had to find somebody who loves King Lear as much as I do. And the person who really jumped on the opportunity to talk about King Lear uh, is someone I've known for years and years and years. He knows tons about Shakespeare. He's been in almost every play and or, well, he's at least worked on almost every play in the canon. He's taught Shakespeare. He's played Shakespeare. He's directed Shakespeare. We're talking about James Graham, who is a Toronto actor, director, teacher, all those things. Uh, and he's actually a former My Theatre Award winner for his performance in King John with Shakespeare Bashed. So we're really excited to talk about King Lear. That interview is coming up in a second. First, I have to do the plugs at my end world on both Twitter and Instagram, my entertainment world in your podcast catcher, my for the website. All of our written content is up there as well as the podcasts. Um, that's about all. See you on the other side. I don't want to do a long synopsis. And the trick with King Lear is that because of the subplot and everything, yeah. all synopses are incredibly long. Um, Dummies.com declared that the, the plot was Lear gives up his kingdom to his daughters and then gives up his mind, uh, which it was maybe a little too simplistic. So I went with the Wikipedia one, which just says the play depicts the gradual descent into madness of the title character after he disposes of his kingdom, giving bequests to two of his three daughters based on their flattery of him, bringing tragic consequences for all. So just in case anybody has, for some reason, decided to listen to this podcast, having never seen or read King Lear, that is the gist of what you're getting yourselves into. So, James, why King Lear? Why is it your favorite? Why did you want to talk about it today? Okay, um, I don't know. I've always been obsessed with this play. Um, I think the first time, first time I saw it, I was 13. Uh, I was with Christopher Plummer at Stratford. And although I kind of, I remember very little about the production itself, especially sort of rereading some of the reviews in the last couple of days, I really didn't remember anything. But I just, I was so struck by it, uh, even at a very young age. Um, its scope, its scale, the the depths that it reaches, uh, I must have just been an overly sensitive 13-year-old. Uh, <laughs> and um, I don't know, something something inside me sort of clicked. And then, but four years later, so I was in grade 11, high school, we did a production of it, uh, which I'm sure you remember. It was the first King Lear I ever saw. There you go. God, <laughs> God bless you. Um, <laughs> I hope they've only gotten better from there. Um, but it was, uh, so at a very young age, I also had the opportunity, the, the was very fortunate to to be in the show. And I, I am a big believer that uh, you never really understand Shakespeare's plays until you've had an opportunity to, to be in them in some capacity. The plays open up in a way uh, from a performance standpoint that they never really do from a literary standpoint. Uh, and so having the opportunity to, to actually be on the inside of it when I was getting to know it as a young person helped to, uh, I don't know, I just connected with it uh, on a human level. And then I wrote an as long sort of essay about it that year, a 20 page essay about it's the performability of King Lear. So I did all these research on the production history of the play and 
uh, its challenges as a script, as a piece of theater versus a piece of writing. And that immersion, which lasted almost six months, kind of just sealed the deal. I've probably seen the play seven, six, seven times now, and it never ceases to surprise me uh, to create moments that are new and exciting. And I, and I think that's the testament of a, of a truly great piece of art or of anything. So... Uh, I know that uh, that's as much as I can. Uh, I, I I don't know. That speaks to me for some reason. And going off this idea of perf performability, what do you think are some of the challenges of staging it in translating it from the page to the stage, and especially staging it in two thousand seventeen? Oh boy, um, the play is such a mess. Like it from a from a structural standpoint. Um, I'm sure people will disagree with me on that, but uh, it's such an unwieldy show that I think some of the, the ideas or the themes or the emotional resonance that people relate to when they read the play gets lost a little bit in trying to navigate the multiple plots, the the uh, just the the sheer amount of language that that's uh that's there how the the use of very archaic you know poetry and puns and imagery that sort of ground characters like poor tom and the fool which when you read them and have a chance to digest them, understand why they're important and why they might have emotional resonancy, but it's really difficult to get a contemporary audience to buy into it or to understand what exactly is being said or why it's important. And so I think something gets can get lost a little bit in translation. Um, and then you have things like, how do you stage the Gloucester suicide scene? Uh, again, a scene on the page, you understand the metaphor, the relationship between father and son, really powerful, really potent. It poses some obvious uh, issues on stage. And, you know, you have to kind of strain, you, you have to accept a kind of a certain suspension of disbelief as an audience member to, to buy that moment, I think. Uh, which can kind of take you out of the experience a little bit. So, so those are some kind of some structural issues, and those have been those have been issues that have been problematic since the 19th century. Uh, there was a belief in the late 19th century that this play was literally unperformable. They rewrote um, it. They rewrote it. Yeah, and Edgar get married in the end. Yes, they do. Uh, that and so that was that he, that was written about thirty years after Shakespeare died, roughly, and performed almost exclusively until the end of the nineteenth century. And then the end of the nineteenth century, there was this feeling that the play couldn't really be performed. Uh, it was more perfect as a piece of literature. It was too perfect as a piece of literature to be marred by the stage. And then, sort of post World War II, is when the play and Peter Brook's production uh, in nineteen sixty-two. Uh, I think helps to bring the play back into the public consciousness in a very visceral way. Uh, and in a way that I think we may have lost again in the 50 years since, which makes it, uh, I think, uh, a difficult 
maybe a difficult play to, to do in 2017. Uh, not that any of these plays aren't difficult to do in 2017 <laughs> for any number of reasons, but uh, I think the scope and size and scale of the show makes it particularly difficult for modern audiences who kind of want things streamlined and want to kind of get to the point really, really quickly. And this isn't a play that allows you to do that. And of the six or seven that you have seen, do, have, does any stick out in your mind as some as a production that really nailed it and really um, made it work in a contemporary setting? Uh, no. <laughs> no one's done it right yet? <laughs> no one's, I mean, no one will ever do it right. Uh, and that's kind of the, to me, the, the joy of these plays personally, uh, as an audience member, is I, I think they're Everests. Uh, I mean, people have climbed Everest, so that maybe that's not a good analogy, but <laughs> um, they are so immense in scale and require so much of their performers, I think, to tap into what Shakespeare is, is, is going for or working to explore. They touch something so deep that we don't practice on a, on a day-to-day -day level uh, that it is just hard to find. Uh, and so maybe an individual performer in a given production will find that, will sort of tap into something essential, will open up something of themselves that allows us to see the humanity of this character. But it's really hard to do that kind of across the board. So... So I'm curious in just seeing every King Lear uh, or every Hamlet or every Macbeth or whatever it is um, because I feel like there are intelligent people, intelligent, emotionally intelligent people who are giving it everything they have and, and, and we're bringing something unique to that uh, production or to the play. And that perspective, that voice offers something different, something that I've never heard before. And that to me is worth it. And maybe someday I'll see the perfect Lear and I can probably give up at that point and <laughs> move on. Um, um, so you mentioned, you brought it up earlier, uh, cards on the table, everybody. I knew James in high school and one of the first Shakespeare productions I ever saw was I saw this crazy version of King Lear that was like, what was what was the the phrase that they used to describe it? It was like heroin chic or something crazy oh God, like that. Yeah. Um, it was all, everybody was in black leather and all that kind of thing. And James played Edgar. And the only mm. thing I remember about this entire production, other than the eye gouging scene with the red lights and the rock music, um, is he walked on the side of his feet when he did poor Tom. Talk to me a little bit about Edgar. This is someone who's, as a character, never made any sense to me. I feel like his, his, the, his the actions he takes seem to come from nowhere. They're not uh, rooted in what I would think of it, any, any sort of rational behavior. Uh, he's got these crazy plans. He acts really impulsively. What can you tell me about Edgar in the sort of quest to understand him from the inside? Mm-hmm. Um, so Edgar makes, weirdly enough, makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, one of the big themes that I, that I'm, that excites me about this play or that I, I connect to about this play is that each of the characters or certainly the sort of the main set of characters, uh, Lear and Edgar being, uh, you know, in the, being sort of the, the main two, uh, go on this journey of empathy. To me, the play the play is about 
stripping away all of the trappings of comfort, of power, uh, and reducing ourselves down to kind of the basest human experience. And in that place, learning what it means to be a person, learning how to connect, how to empathize, how to relate to others, how to uh, appreciate what we have as opposed to strive for something more, which the play has plenty of as well. Edgar has always struck me as someone who, I mean, who is uh, kind, is a good guy, for lack of a better word. He's grown, but, but is horribly naive about the world. He's grown up in, in privilege, in an immense amount of privilege. Uh, you know, grew up in the court. His father's a powerful figure, a supporter, um, obviously the sort of the chief of staff to the king. Edgar probably would have gone to private school, would have gone off to, a, uh, you know, gotten his MBA, would have run the, the family business or a business and would have ended up back in politics, kind of inside this world which certainly at that time, and not unlike now, very sort of self-contained. And as a result of that, has absolutely no understanding of, uh, of anything, uh, really. And, and that, to me, is the impetus for, or is kind of the justification in my mind for his naive behavior off the top. I don't think he has any reason because he's never been given any reason to not trust other people, which is something that I, under similar circumstances, can kind of uh, understand. I think he likes his brother. I think he's actually one of the few people that, that does. I think he has no reason not to, or doesn't think that he has any reason not to. So, so that kind of, that, that to me is the circumstances under which he begins the play. And because of his brother's actions, he's forced to uh, move into a world that he doesn't, would never have any reason to understand or to know. I find it curious, personally, that, that he uh, chooses to do that, of all things, to become a beggar. The fact that he's even noticed that there are these people in the country who are beggars, who he might be able to transform into, uh, is a kind of interesting idea for me about, but maybe he's a little bit more perceptive about the world around him than the rest of the people in court are, uh, when you look at the way that they ultimately treat him when he's a beggar, or the way they talk about servants, uh, there's a, such a, just a, just a, a hatred toward anyone that's not a royal. And so he's decided that this is the best way to be invisible. And in that experience, in being forced to take on that that new life and spend some significant time in there, he has access to a whole different way of being in the world, a different understanding of power, of the way that human beings relate to each other, that I think 
uh, informs him when he returns back to to the court a kind of just a broader humanity than certainly his brother has um, that I think is really important and really beautiful. He has this thing, I was just looking at it today, at the beginning of 4.1, um, he says, Yet better thus and known to be contemned, so and known to be hated, than still contemned and flattered. So still hated and yet flattered. To be worst, the lowest and most dejected thing of fortune, stands still in esperance, lives not in fear. The lamentable change is from the best. The worst returns to laughter. Uh, an appreciation, to me that, that text shows an appreciation of what it means to be present, what it just means to be a human being, and taking joy in that rather than in power or money or fame. Uh, and I think that's a really beautiful idea. So then he puts poor Tom sort of on himself as a disguise as he goes uh, and flees into exile and then enters the service of King Lear out on the heath. Um, then he starts to drop it as he, you know, takes his father under his wing and then comes back eventually as the champion in act five. Talk to us a little bit about that transition and shedding this disguise that had really opened up the world for him. Well, I think at some point he realizes that he has to shed the disguise. Um, there's an interesting idea of, of, uh, in meditation, of, of go, when you go into the place of meditation, of kind of exploration of peace, of mindfulness, there's a desire, uh, an equal desire to want to stay there. There can be a resistance to re-entering the world because the world is messy. The world is full of compromise. And I wonder whether he recognizes once he's met the king, once he meets, obviously, certainly once he meets his father, that he has an obligation to re-enter the fray. He can't be invisible forever because there are people that are clearly getting hurt. He learns at the time, you know, when, he, when he's gotten his father and he fights Oswald and he gets the letter of what his brother's doing and what... Goneril and Edmund are planning against the Duke of Albany and realizing that there are politi political machinations at work that he can no longer ignore. So I think with this newfound understanding, uh, he, he begins to uh, come back into the, the, the world of the play as a kind of champion, perhaps, of a new way of ruling, uh, a truer, more honest way of ruling. Uh, because the implication is that Edgar becomes the king at the end of the play. I mean, obviously, it's somewhat ambiguous, but there, I think there's a title page of the show that seems to that suggests that he takes over afterward. I don't have the... I remember it from my research, but I don't have it on me. Um, and... Uh, maybe that, that that the idea is that he's going to come back with all of this 
knowledge that he's gained and be able to lead the kingdom from a place of honesty and truth rather than from one of deception. And most of the tragedies end with a long speech by the person who will take over the throne, your Fortinbras, your uh, Malcolm, those sort of people. Uh, And Lear ends with a much shorter little piece and there's a bit of a disagreement between the quarto and the folio between who speaks those final lines, Edgar or Albany. How do you think the shorter, less easily wrapped up in a nice bow um, ending speaks to the, the themes of the play at large and the world that the end of Lear sends us off into? Yes. Well, I think the, uh, to work off the the last lines, which I I mean I think they should be attributed to Edgar, based on kind of the way that I see that this journey, the sort of the wrapping up of this journey. But obviously that's up to to whatever production wants to take it on. There, there's something really beautiful about the idea that uh, the last the last lines are essentially the um, the weight of this sad time we must obey, speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest hath borne most, we that are young shall never see so much nor live so long. There's a, a reflection on the experience and, and a, a very succinct statement on, on the way that things should be acted moving forward. It can't be a big speech. Like one can argue at the end of 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 Mackers that Malcolm's speech there's there's a lot of um, po- politi- there's a lot of political speak in that that he's going against what Edgar he's going against the advice that Edgar gives at the end of this show which is let's just be truthful with one another let's be honest let's keep it simple and I have nothing more to say than that uh, which I think is an important part of. The journey of of this play toward a kind of simpler way of being um, and a recognition of the experiences of others. Well, and I think there is something too, if you were looking for a a single sentence uttered in the play to sum up and serve as a summary of Lear, uh, speak what we feel and not what we ought to say might be it. Going back to, you know, one, one, the inciting incident with Cordelia refusing to say something that she doesn't believe. Um, Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about uh, one of the the scholarly themes in the play that is talked a lot about in academic circles was presented in the 50s by Jonas, Jonas A. Barish and Marshall Wainegrow, the idea of service in King Lear and what it means to truly serve someone, um, not necessarily specifically uh, servants in the sense of the class system, but also the idea of Cordelia versus her sisters, the, the ways in which they serve their father, the way that Kent serves him him by standing up to him and not doing what he says the same thing um one of my favorite characters is cornwall's first servant the one servant in the play who's unnamed who stands up to his master and make tries to make him do the right thing instead of just doing as he's told like oswald would um can you talk a little bit about the idea of service and how that folds into cordelia's inciting decision to not just give his father exactly what he wants and instead to speak what she feels not what she ought to say yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think this is this enduring theme of of honesty and what what is um, what is the human interaction like? What is the 
trying to get my, my head around this idea. Uh, what is the, what do we owe one another? And on a fundamental level, because in a way it seems to me that the play is working in two ways. It's working uh, on the level of political intrigue. So you have a series of characters that are figuring out how to manipulate each other in order to reach the top of the food chain. Meanwhile, they're simultaneously all destroying each other uh, because it's an unsustainable way to live versus uh, uh, what is what does pure service mean? What does pure love mean? And do we have the strength as human beings to accept pure service, to accept pure love? Uh, one of the one of the themes that I or one of the the, the motifs that continued to to come back when I reread the play was this idea of trust. The the. Cordelia makes that decision trusting that her father will understand what she means. Trusting that her father knows that she loves him. Likewise, Kent stands up to Lear knowing that he... Trusting that Lear understands the way that Kent feels about him. Which he doesn't for, you know, any number of reasons. And that's part of the exchange is I will offer you pure service. I will offer you pure love if you, if you trust that it's there. And in a way, the stripping away of all of this stuff and the, the, the going on to the Heath and the, the exchange with, with Edgar is an exploration. Again, trust, I believe is an empathetic uh, impulse. And, and so that's the discovery that gets made about, you know, if we don't trust that we love each other when we say we love each other, then what do we have? Um, and to me, that's what, and that's what pure love and pure service. What I love so much about the Kent's journey is that it's service without title, that he is a man who serves in disguise so he, as Kent, is never going to get the recognition for his service to the king. He just serves him because he loves him. Uh, and I think that is a, it's an idea we should all strive toward more than I think we do. Uh, service without recompense. And I think those two characters off the top of the play embody that. And a number of the other characters in the play need to go on the journey of the play in order to get there or close to there. Um, the idea at the end of the show that all Lear wants, when they get arrested, that all Lear wants is to just sit in jail with his daughter and tell stories and, laugh at and sing. Butterflies. That it's, it's like that to, that to him at that point is the ultimate happiness, is just to be present with her in that space in love like just uh and but it's taken him going to sort of the depths of his humanity to uh, re-emerge with a pretty simple idea uh so that's those are my my, my feelings on that um and 
score. When you talk about the fact that Lear isn't able to recognize in that Kent does love him, and that and same with Cordelia, that what he's saying, what they're saying, comes from this place of love that they take for granted. He understands. Uh, one of the uh, very popular modern takes uh, performatively on the text is that Lear is suffering from very severe dementia. How do you feel that interpretation informs the uh, both where he starts in 1-1 and the quote-unquote madness journey that he goes on through those middle acts? Um, my feeling is that it's a bit of a method actor not that that's a that sounds too pejorative but it but it's um it's a modern psychological way of making sense of of these decisions when i actually think it's much purer than that um i understand the impulse i've i saw a, there was a a beautiful production um of it that Simon Russell Beale did at the National that followed the dementia sort of tact. And there was some really beautiful stuff. And if that allows the, the actor to fully embody the kind of the truth of the character from an emotional level, then I, you know, then great, whatever keys you need, find them. I just worry that taking that tact diminishes from the emotional journey. It creates excuses for the for certain moments that maybe are better served being played honestly. If that if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. I'm um that if we just accept that Lear makes this choice and then pivots and makes this choice and we go, well, he, in this moment he was proud because of you know, any number of reasons, but more importantly, he just made that choice and then proceeds over the course of the play to struggle with his sanity. And sometimes he's sane and sometimes he's unstable, but what he's actually saying is more important than sort of justifying why it's, he's saying it. Um, it's that idea that I subscribe to with, with Shakespeare's texts that the there is no subtext there is intention there is strong in there's motivated intention but that the words itself um are the argument or tell the story or tell us about who this character is so instead of saying that lear has dementia ergo what he's saying is madness or that's why he says these silly things and everyone goes oh he's mad that's an interesting interpretation as opposed to saying, well, what's he actually saying? What is the, at the heart of this pun or what's at the heart of this image? Or, and he's saying this as if he believes it, as if he's absolutely compass mentis, but the words that are coming out of his mouth are, seem like gibberish, but they don't, they're not gibberish. Uh, more often than not, when, they, when, I, when I reread them or investigate them, they have something very profound to say about the world. They're just filtered through a, a set of images that maybe aren't as accessible to us as they would have been in Jacobean England. Well, so, okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry, no, go continue. ahead. Um, so all that to say, I mean, 
actors should be able to do whatever they want to to access it but if the dementia theme undermines the 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 open-hearted core of this play if it makes it easier to dismiss Lear and his journey his emotional journey then I think something very important about the play is lost well, and speaking of profundity that maybe is more only really clear when you're you have the space and the time to really investigate what's being said, it can maybe get lost on the audience. Let's talk a little bit about the fool and the part that he plays in the story. Um, there's a production happening right now where he is double cast with Cordelia, which is a thing that happens all the time, or not as much anymore, but it certainly is a, an accepted practice because Cordelia disappears just in time for the fool to appear. And then the fool disappears when she reappears. Um, you talk a little bit about the paralleling of those two characters and also just the role of the fool as the truth teller in the story. Um, maybe compared to some of the other fools like your fests and, uh, pucks out in the rest of the canon. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, by all means, double cast. I mean, for, for logistical reasons as much as anything. I mean, I, I think the, the, the parallels are evident in a kind of, in that idea of honesty. Um, I think for me, Cordelia's honesty and the fool's honesty are different, uh, which would give me pause in that double casting, but it, you know, not a huge leap. Um, I think what's interesting about the fool is the fool is paid to tell the truth. And you get the sense at this stage that he doesn't want to tell the truth anymore because the truth is really painful. There's a kind of weariness. There's a, you know, there's an idea of, of, you know, we all want to live more mindfully and we want to be more aware in the world. But there's a burden that comes with that awareness because you're forced to acknowledge all of the hurt and the pain and the ups and downs that just come with being a human being. And I get the sense that the fool, uh, that, that, that his desire to tell the truth, or his, not his desire to tell the truth, his uh, need to tell the truth is a, is a huge weight on his shoulder. And I find it interesting that he disappears as other characters begin to sort of be, find more truth within themselves, be it Edgar or Lear or Gloucester, that he doesn't need to be there anymore. What the circumstances of how he left are obviously changed from production to production. But I see someone who is burdened with the obligation to tell the truth because to tell the truth in, a wor in the world is... Uh, a great burden. And he says he has the line about, I'm whipped for telling the truth. I'm whipped for lying. You whip me for lying. Goneril whips me for telling the truth. And sometimes I'm whipped for not saying anything. And what does that mean? You know, we look at our current political climate and who are the truth tellers? And what does it mean to be a truth teller? What does it mean to be, not to say that the, the, the connection is that clear, but what does it mean to be Colin Kaepernick and say, I'm going to kneel on behalf of some truth that's happening in the world, and then I'm going to be sub subsequently destroyed just for wanting to speak up for something that is happening in the world. And to me, the, the, the fool is kind of a weary, 
uh, advocate or a weary messenger of the sort of harsh reality of being a human. And everyone else gets to lie and cheat and dissemble and flatter and make themselves feel better by skirting around the truth where he's burdened with, with that responsibility. To the, for the amusement or for the edification or the education of those around him. That's his job. And you've talked quite a bit about this idea of characters finding their humanity throughout the play, um, gaining a sense of empathy, and that's really reflected in Lear and Edgar. Um, and then there are the people who start out with it and then help to disseminate it amongst other characters. There are, however, certain characters who go on a bit of a downward dis uh, spiral and or start out not uh, with very good intentions and never really get better. Um, again, to reference the production that's happening right now, Tragedy of Lear, one of their sort of founding principles in terms of their uh, approach to the text is that heroes and villains are a fallacy and they don't really exist. And so each actor in the production has really approached their character as a well-meaning, relatively, you know, quote unquote, good guy. Uh, and the their effort is in trying to reconcile essentially the actions whether they're a, a character who participates in act three scene seven the eye gouging scene that is really hard to explain away um or you know goneril and edmund these kind of characters they're really approaching them as sort of misunderstood or what are what are the ways in which we can humanize those characters specifically with regards to regan and goneril uh who when they're really humanized often it results in it's either the result of or it results in a darker portrayal of their father um, as really taking advantage of them and demanding things, hundred nights, all that kind of thing. Um, is he really more sinned against than sinning? And does the humanization of certain characters, um, how does that alter how we see um, our quote unquote heroes? Um, well, I think, I mean, I, I don't, I, I agree with the sentiment that there are, no villains and, and no heroes. Um, but I think there are people more inclined toward, again, I'm going to return to this idea of toward sort of non-human, uh, not uh, toward uh, external validation, external power, uh, money, fame, that make choices they look at the world around them and instead of making human empathetic choices, make choices in service of themselves, um, which we can always justify. We can always justify it. You know, our, our current society is rife with people that came from nothing, were not treated very well, worked really, really hard to get to a place uh, of power and then don't extend that any kind of empathy back. And so we can look at someone like Edmund and say, Edmund wasn't treated very well. He's uh, by his father. Uh, and he's been ostracized from, a, from the levers of power for no other reason but because he's a bastard. So he feels that he's justified in 
in playing people off each other, in, in saying, I, I have the right because I am a human being of a skilled and talented person to make my own way in the world. And this old system of doing things is broken. And yet at the same time, so I can, I can absolutely see a justification for that. But at some point, you then look at him and what he does and who he begins to turn on and how many deaths he is single-handedly responsible for. And I start to go, okay, but well, what's the line? I can justify the beginning of the action, but I can't personally justify the way that that action... I can, I, I, I can justify it. I can see how he can justify it for himself, but I externally can't justify the continuation of that action. Likewise with Regan and Goneril, what I find really interesting about them is I love this idea that their father is putting, is a bit of a tyrant, is demanding a ton from them initially. And I get the sense that initially there's a resistance, there's an understanding that he's unpredictable and they need to ensure that they are not damaged in the process. And which I understand, I recognize and yet I think I get the sense that because they've justified that to themselves, because it becomes an act of self-preservation on both of, the, certainly on Goneril's, I would say more so on Goneril's side of things, that it becomes a, a it becomes a kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, or um, they, they continue to act in, in greater set, service of themselves, um, which at some point crosses a kind of moral threshold. Does that make any sense? I'm, I'm trying to, to wrap my head around this idea. You might need to help me a little the bit here. But also, I, I put like seven uh, questions in one question, which wasn't really fair. <laughs> but but, I, I mean, uh, but what, I'm, what I'm getting at is that if, if the initial motives can be justified, if Lear, I can justify demanding that he not have his hundred knights, but I can't justify locking him out of doors and then plotting to have him killed. Um, there is a line in which I think they cross um, where they no longer sort of have any kind of uh, respect or, or they lose all sort of... Uh, all empathy for for other people it's uh it becomes more about themselves and about consolidating their own power one of the things that i'm really curious about as a sort of small side note is that there's all of this talk at this uh early on about how cornwall and albany are gonna are starting to turn on each other and yet the sisters are still talking to one another and I'm kind of curious where that animosity lives. But it sounds as if immediately they've split the, the kingdom in two, but almost immediately Cornwall and Albany have decided that their halves of the kingdom are not enough. They need the whole kingdom uh, for themselves. They need to be the king or their wives need to be um, queen. And that feeling of uh, I need to continue to get power, I need to continue to collect, it's never enough, it's never enough. It's obviously a very resonant theme in our current society, and I think one that ultimately uh, can help people justify terrible things, both politically, economically, uh, 
Um, so, so at some point, I would say for myself, those characters become villains. Well, and there's there's two things off of that. On one hand, you're looking at there's the um, sort of con- contrasting of Lear and Edgar um, and Kent specific, and actually Cordelia specifically go on a journey of losing all of their material possessions in order to gain their humanity. And the the people who are end the play as villains, whether they started that way completely or not, uh, their journey is of acquiring. Uh, and it's a pretty pretty strict like crossing. They it's 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 very much a parallel. Um, as one goes up, the other goes down. Uh, that is an interesting thing to note. Um, also, with regards to the tension between Cornwall and Albany, I mean, they're pitted against each other from the literal first line of the play, which is, you know, the, I thought the king mm-hmm. preferred one over the other. Um, so in terms of the, as if we're opening the play with this idea of they're not on equal footing and they can't be on equal footing and one is going to win, um, I think that's an interesting lens through which to see the play. And ultimately, the one who survives and thrives in the end, there's an understanding that Albany is, you know, depending on how you see the ending of the play, certainly he is going to have some rewards come from it. Uh, he's the one who ultimately stands his ground and, and doesn't let uh, ambition corrupt him to the same degree that Cornwall does, and he ultimately comes over on top. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to look at. Yeah, but, but one could argue that Albany found his moral fiber Absolutely. too late. Um, he's, he's like a member of the Republican <laughs> Senate. He's Bob Corker. That, like, at, at what cost, like, at what, how much was he willing to, to let his wife do before finally he went, well, this is enough. Versus characters that stand up from the beginning, like Cordelia, Kent. Cordelia, who dies. Um, oh. Who dies. Because um, ultimately, his, his lack of action earlier in the play... Um, cause there's a scene that I had never recognized before. It's at the end of one four where essentially Goneril tells H- Albany what she's doing with, with her father. Um, and she expresses to him that it's not necessarily that the hundred knights are, are doing anything bad really, but that they could do something bad. They could do something really bad. So I want to make, I want to set boundaries now for fear that I won't get hurt down the line. And Albany kind of pushes back gently, but ultimately says, okay, whatever you say goes. And, you know, there's a common, common insult that she has for him that he's just too nice. He's too, he's too much of a of a company man and he doesn't have a backbone versus Edmund who is a mover and a shaker and a sexy and uh, gets what he wants and takes it and that's an attractive quality but ultimately a destructive one a self-destructive one but uh, but a destructive one certainly in the, the the fabric of the entire play he you know he gets the two women that he gets the two sisters to turn on each other he kills Cordelia and Lear, uh, and so it, uh, to what extent is that sexiness, is that, uh, you know, going after what you want a, a, a positive virtue, a value 
you know, it's interesting. We've been talking a lot. Of, there's been a lot of conversation recently about, you know, obviously with all of the, the Harvey Weinstein stuff and the idea of men in power and how the attributes that allow ambitious people to become leaders are the same attributes that make them predatory or can be. Um, and to me, Edmund embodies that kind of personality. Uh, and Cornwall to an extent, though I think Cornwall is just more of a, a, a sadist than he is anything else. Um, I think he's, he's not as smart as Edmund is. But Edmund, Edmund strikes me as a kind of, yeah, as an embodiment of the, you know, the, the go after what you want mentality, but also it's inevitable uh, mm -hmm. destructiveness. So as you've touched on a little bit earlier, Lear is one of the sort of grand poetic pieces in Shakespeare's canon. Um, but it's also a very deeply human piece that is really very character-based. Um, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of delivering the poetry and really, um, you know, preserving the verse, but also making everything sound like, uh, you know, words that a, a human being is just coming up with and speaking in that moment from their heart? Yeah, I think it's really hard. I mean, I think it's it's what's difficult about all Shakespeare, um, especially in a modern sort of acting context where we're not as comfortable, or even in a modern audience context where we're not as comfortable with that, that size of language and, and don't value, don't really, can't necessarily connect that, that the size of that language and playing the size of that language can be human, can be e deeply, deeply human. Um, so I think it presents a really huge challenge. And I think it's one of the reasons why the divide between our love of these plays and how we experience them when we go and see them as audience members can often be, be quite wide. Um, even trusting that the people that are working on this show have thought, or these plays have thought a lot about them and are smart, intelligent people who have put their heart and soul into it. And even then, it's hard to execute. Um, because I think one of the reasons, and it touched on something that I was getting at earlier, I think one of the reasons that makes it so difficult is that these plays require such an openness. Um, a vulnerability, which I think the, the size of the verse captures. When we are at our most vulnerable, we are at our most expansive. And it's not an intellectual exercise, it's a deeply emotional one. Um, and accessing that emotion, the depth of the uh, emotion that is required, the depth of um, an understanding of self you know, want, like in order to be able to, 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 to use an example, like in order to be able to do, to Lear, that character or even some of the adjacent characters, one has to come to terms, I think, as an actor w with what it might mean to be near death or to understand what death might, how death might, uh, or a, an understanding of death or coming to terms with death might, um, what it might do to, to one's, 
view of the world and one's view of oneself and what's important. And what a scary thing to ask any living human being to, to take on. And, but in my opinion, if, if we're, if we're not willing to open that up, um, in ourselves in this process, certainly like in the rehearsal room or on stage, you know, not necessarily outside the theater, got to keep safe, but that, that we're only going to ever reach 75% of the play. And unfortunately, the disservice that that does, and, and I'm, as someone who's failed many times to do Shakespeare, uh, the disservice that that does is it makes, it gives people the perception that, is, it, that it is the language that's the barrier, that they will never understand these plays, that these plays aren't relatable, when in fact, I think, if the actor is willing to open themselves up to the size of that human experience, then I think every, I personally believe that everyone can find inside of that something that they've grappled with in their own lives. So I have one, yeah. But that's really hard I to do. I have one closing question, but before we get there, is there anything else you wanted to say about King Lear? Um, uh, yeah, well, just one last sort of thing that I've been thinking a lot about with regards to, to all of these tragedies, um, that has been really meaningful for me is that I've been exploring a lot more in my, my own life and, and it's a, become a sort of a, a common thread in our society about mindfulness and sort of a spirituality uh, and mindfulness to me or, or whatever that practice is, the, a practice of sort of deep meditation is about emerging, uh, returning to our, or understanding the, the, the complexity of our, of our thoughts, of our minds and our bodies and, um, uh, reaching a, a presence and an understanding of others that is deeply empathetic and deeply is full of generosity and love and is not of the mind. It's, it's, um, what I'm getting at is, uh, I think these plays are similar journeys. I think they're meditations. I think they're deep meditations and I hope I hope we can continue to explore them as, or, or see them as really valuable and vital lessons uh, on how to be a, a person. That they aren't, they're, they're not so far removed from our experience, that the power dynamics that exist in this play and others are so present in our society, and also that the human experiences that all of these characters struggle with, they don't resolve anything that they struggle with, is our is the same as the things that we struggle with, and the things that we talk about, and all the posts that are happening, the the the, the 
attempts that we're making to, to build a more equitable society, to build a more understanding society, to grapple with who we are, to be better, to, to rise above our flaws, that is what these characters are doing. And not to lose that when we produce them, when we perform them, when we read them, and to bring that, our own hopes and fears and dreams and flaws and open hearts and prejudices uh, to each and every one of the characters in this play and in all of his plays because there's something worthy of exploring in all of them. So we're going to end every episode of this series with the same question. Uh, we start with a synopsis of the play, the actual, uh, an idea of what the plot is. And uh, as over the course of the episode, we talk about some of the big themes and what we think the play is about. At the end of the day, what do you think, to you, what is King Lear about? King Lear is about... Uh, empathy. It's about human understanding. It's about stripping away all of the superfluous um, things that come to define our lives, power structures, um, fame, money, and coming to terms with what it really means to be a human being on an essential level. And that only when we get there will we begin to extend a hand to others and to those that are uh, more in need than we are. Okay. So that ends our discussion of King Lear. Do you have anything you'd like to plug, talk about your social media, Al, that kind of brass tacks kind of stuff uh no no i'm i'm gonna go hang out in a field for the next week and discover my humanity i'm not on social media uh but. <laughs> well, thanks so much james uh thank you kelly so that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to search My Entertainment World in your podcast catcher to get the entire Shakespeare series as we work our way towards all 38 plays. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, all that jazz. MyEntertainmentWorld.ca is the website. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you next time.